Welcome to Exit Capitalism, Stage Left. I'm your host, Manda Riggle. This podcast is brought to you by the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. The primary purpose of the Maggie Fair Institute is to educate people, especially young people, about democracy and human rights. This purpose will be achieved through, but not limited to, such practices as hiring an educator, sponsoring projects, sponsoring forums and workshops, showing educational films, operating a library, developing educational materials, and creating podcasts like the one you're listening to here. Before we get started on today's topic, I'd like to recognize that the Maggie Fair Institute sits on Gabrielino Tungva land. The subject for today's podcast is called An Economic Bill of Rights for the People. It is based on a blog post written by our comrade Mimi Saltisic, found on MaggieFairInstitute.org. Mimi was the former educator for the Maggie Fair Institute who passed this summer. I would like to dedicate this podcast to him and let everybody listening know that what is to follow are his words. Under a capitalist economic system, profit reigns supreme. The economic well-being of the people necessarily plays second fiddle to profit. Progress reforms to the system, reforms that will deliver much-needed short-term relief and widen the scope of the country's social safety net, are consistently under attack by capital and are always subject to repeal or the potential of diminished effect. For example, we might see a minimum wage increase implemented at a time where healthcare and cost of living costs outpace that wage increase. Capitalism can appear to be so firmly entrenched that the thought of dismantling it to replace it with something better, something that can deliver economic stability and a life of dignity, can be so overwhelming that it becomes an abstraction. Undoubtedly, dismantling a system this powerful would be an extraordinarily profound challenge. But as author Ursula K. Le Guin once noted, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. In this hypothetical scenario, if capitalism were to be replaced, what would take its place? The Maggie Fair Institute would suggest the reader consider socialism an economic system where the workers own and control production, where democracy is a core value and where basic needs are met across the board. What would socialism deliver? What kind of economic rights would people have in a socialist society? The first thing we'll look at is a living wage, which isn't to be confused with a minimum wage. A living wage is the minimum amount needed in any given area to guarantee that an individual's basic needs are met. From MIT's living wage calculator, created by Dr. Kate Glasmere, a living wage is, quote, a market-based approach that draws upon geographically specific expenditure data related to a family's likely minimum food, childcare, health insurance, housing, transportation, and other basic necessities like clothing, personal care items, etc. If we take the city of Los Angeles as an example, The living wage calculator shows us that a single parent with one child would need to earn a minimum of $30.27 an hour to meet their most basic needs. Here we could see how a progressive reform like $15 an hour for minimum wage falls short of providing economic health and stability. With a $15 an hour minimum wage, that single parent with one child in Los Angeles falls 
over $15 in the negative for every hour worked. In a social society where workers own and control production, that living wage would be guaranteed as a right. Next, we'll look at healthcare. Healthcare in the United States is the world's most expensive, yet it ranks far behind countries with either a single payer system or a socialized system in terms of quality of care. In fact, healthcare is the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country. The extent of the problem is widespread. Earlier this year, CNBC reported that, quote, a new study from academic researchers found that 66.5% of all bankruptcies were tied to medical issues, either because of the high cost for care or time out of work. An estimated 530,000 families turn to bankruptcy each year because of medical issues and bills, the research found. Adding insult to injury of those bankruptcies, a majority of those filed had medical insurance. In a socialist economic system, the people would have access to doctors of their choice with no out-of-pocket expense. Everyone would be covered. And what about housing? In many areas of the country, rent prices are skyrocketing. According to a 2017 Money.com report, thanks to inflation, we can expect rent and other expenses to rise over the years, but rental rate increases in the U.S. have been outpacing inflation for decades. Coupled with, and as a result of skyrocketing rents, the number of unhoused is also skyrocketing. HuffPost reports that the city of Los Angeles saw a 12% increase in the number of unhoused from 2018 to 2019, with the number reaching a staggering 59,000. The message the capitalist system sends to the people, if you can't afford housing, get ready for a life on the streets. Under a socialist economic system, housing would either be low cost or subsidized, with assurances given that no one would be left without a home. Undoubtedly, some will ask how all of the above would be paid for. It's a reasonable question, but the answers aren't terribly complex. We can start by taking a look at military spending. Each year, the War Registers League publishes a pie chart detailing specifically where our tax dollars are being spent. For fiscal year 2019, the WRL reported that 47% of our income taxes are spent on the military, with 20% spent on past military expenditures, that's $644 billion, and 27% spent on current military expenditures, that's $857 billion. You might ask why we are spending so much money on the military. In a capitalist system, the military paves the way for acquisition to resources, which in turn delivers profit. Very little of the military's function serves to defend the country from any sort of foreign threat. We can also look at our tax code. The U.S. tax code is regressive, meaning that the less you earn, the heavier the tax burden. A shift to a steeply graduated income tax would go a long way towards providing the necessary funds to deliver our proposed economic bill of rights. Let's also look at corporate taxes. The Washington Post reported earlier this year that Amazon, the e-commerce giant helmed by the world's richest man, paid no federal taxes on a profit of $11.2 billion last year. Not only did Amazon not pay a dime in federal taxes, they actually received a federal tax rebate of $129 million. 
again, a massive restructuring of the U.S. tax code is in order. Delivering a humane and just Economic Bill of Rights for the people is not a matter of resources. Delivering a humane and just Economic Bill of Rights for the people is a matter of priorities and will. Asking capitalism to put people before profit is an exercise in futility. That's not how the system is designed to operate. We've been down this road for decades and decades, and the results are getting worse. The time to transition to an economic system, socialism, that places humanity over profit has come. Do we have the will? Once again, that was An Economic Bill of Rights for the People by Mimi Saltisic. You can find this blog post and others written by him on maggiefairinstitute.org. Um, thank you for your work, comrade. You are always going to be missed. Um, and I'm so happy we have something like your words to, to remember you by. So with all of that being said or read, I'd like to move on to kind of my area of expertise, which is the history of capitalism um, as the history of exploitation. My current work is within the early modern period. Uh, I study the kind of transition between the feudal to capitalist era and literature and artworks and performances that existed around that time. A lot of this goes into understanding kind of the history and the motivation behind those transitions. So I would like to first start with the idea that the history of capitalism is the history of exploitation. In the early modern period, capitalism and oppressive power structures like racism, sexism, ableism, and classism, just to name a few, formed in such a way that they are not only entangled, but nearly impossible to distinguish from one another. Further, the underlying foundation of modernity as an overarching period, which started roughly in 1450 ADE, um, depending on what part of like Europe you were looking at, this is where people pin modernity as starting, um, but it continues today. We are still living in the modern period. This whole movement of modernity is rooted in capitalist power, which is designed to exploit the bodies, hearts, minds, and spirits of the masses for the profit of a very few. Cedric Robinson, author of Black Marxism, observed that the historic development of world capitalism was influenced in the most fundamental way by the particularized forces of racism and nationalism. He calls this racial capitalism. Robinson continues, and what I'm going to read is a full paragraph from his book, Black Marxism. So these words that follow are his. Um, the creation of capitalism was much more than a matter of displacement of feudal modes and relations of production by capitalist ones. Certainly, the transformation of the economic structures of non-capitalist Europe, specifically the Mediterranean and Western European market, trade, and production systems, into capitalist forms of production and exchange was a major part of the process. Still, the first appearance of capitalism in the 15th century involved other dynamics as well. The social, cultural, political, and ideological complexes of European feudalism contributed more to capitalism than the social, quote, fetters that precipitated the bourgeoisie into social and political resolutions. No class was its own creation. Indeed, capitalism was less a catastrophic revolution or negation of feudal social order than an extension of those social relations into the larger tapestry of the modern world's political and economic relations. 
historically the civilization evolving in the western extremities of the Asian and European continent and whose first signification is medieval Europe passed with few disjunctions from feudalism as a dominant mode of production to capitalism as a dominant mode of production and from this very or from its very beginnings this European civilization containing racial, tribal, linguistic, and regional particularities was constructed on antagonistic differences. Silvia Federici, in her work Caliban and the Witch, but she has many other works in which she would agree with what Robson has written, um, she expands upon these ideas uh, and this notion of differing forms of oppression that developed kind of alongside and intertwined with capitalism and still exists within the system today. She writes that capitalism was not the product of an evolutionary development bringing forth economic forces that were maturing in the womb of the old feudal order. Capitalism was the response of feudal lords, the uh, patrician merchants, the bishops and popes, to a centuries-long social conflict that, in the end, shook their power and truly gave all the world a big jolt. Capitalism was the counter-revolution that destroyed the possibilities that had emerged from the anti-feudal struggle, end quote from her. Um, I'm going to quote her again and read some more, but I really want to sit with that. A lot of people think of the medieval period, the feudal period, as the Dark Ages. We did have things like the Black Plague. There were things like the Crusades. It wasn't exactly idealistic. But from a worker's point of view, they had made major gains. Feudal serfs lived on the land for many generations to the point where they saw this land as their own land and no longer as the king's land and no longer as the land belonging to nobles. After the Black Death, after, you know, like a third of Europe's population was wiped out, suddenly the workers had more power and they had more claims to that land. And so there was this long struggle that took place one in which women were forefront, one in which people demanded that the commons be reopened when those started shutting down. And I will talk about how that's important. Um, But there was a lot going on in which under the feudal system, serfs had more class mobility and more rights than we do today. So calling it the dark ages and insinuating that we're not in some sort of dark age is really kind of counterintuitive and a real misrepresentation of what people did in the past. There's a notion when we talk about history in the past that these people are are dead or monolithic and they all agreed in the same thing. It's not uh, Jane Austen novels, which is under capitalism, but it's not you know uh, King Arthur and different fairy tales. Those weren't people's everyday lives. Most of the everyday people's lives were written about maybe in fairy tales, but barely. Usually the ones that are represented by Disney and capitalist systems today are ones that are about the rich, about the affluent, um, about the good things, right? Um, Or they're horror tales and scary tales to warn us of, of dangers in the woods and so on. But there's so much divergence in the past there was so much struggle there were so many little revolutions that were ignored and people act as if the transition to capitalism was one which everybody welcomed is one that brought in a golden age is one that 
um, protected workers and gave them rights. But we know if we actually pay attention to history, every right we have today has been fought for. It's something that we've won from capitalists. And a lot of the, uh, the feudal workers had already won some of those rights. They had more of a collective identity. Uh, they stood up for each other more than we really see today, although that is reemerging. But I'm going to go back into kind of Sylvia Federici and some of the other uh, things that she wrote. So she notes that there were a few major concessions made when capitalism came to power. In her works, she notes that women's autonomy, women's labor, and women's ability to even procreate, especially, again, procreate future workers, were such concessions made for the sake of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Most men lost their ability to use common open land. These are lands where you could hunt, right? You could hunt for game. They are ones where you could plant and bring home food for your family. There are things which you could live off of without participating in the capitalist system. In order for the system of feudalism to transition into capitalism, there could be no more free land. There could be no more open land because land is a commodity. So those close down. And so while men lost the ability to hunt on this land without licenses, um, again, if you've heard things like, you know, you're hunting the king's deer, that's the king's land. That was kind of some of the first closures happening. Uh, and then they lost the ability to kind of farm without owning the land that they were farming on. Uh, but they were able in this transition to claim their wives or daughters' wages, control their wives or daughters' social lives, and control the women in their lives' ability to procreate. And Sylvia Federici wrote this in her book, again, Caliban and the Witch. Women, the new common and the substitute for land lost. And this is a direct quote from her book. It was from this alliance between the crafts and the urban authorities, along with the continuing privatization of land, that a new sexual division of labor, or better, a new, quote, sexual contract, in Carol Pateman's words from 1988, was forged, defining women in terms mothers, wives, daughters, widows, that hid their status as workers while giving men free access to women's bodies, their labor, and the bodies and labor of their children. According to this new social sex contract, proletarian women became, for the male worker, the substitute for the land lost to the enclosures, their most basic means of reproduction, and a communal good anyone could appreciate and use at will. Echoes of this primitive appropriation can be heard in the concept of the common woman, that's from Karis from 1988, which the 16th century qualified those who prostituted themselves. But in the new organization of work, every woman, other than those privatized by bourgeois men, became a communal good, for once a woman's services were defined as non-work, women's labor began to appear as a natural resource, available to all no less than the air we breathe or the water we drink. This was for women a historic defeat. Within their expulsion from the crafts and the devaluation of reproductive labor, po uh, poverty became feminized, and to enforce men's, quote, primary appropriation, end quote, of women's labor, a new patriarchal order was constructed, reducing women to double dependence on employers and on men. The fact that unequal power relations between women and men existed even prior to the advent of capitalism, as did discriminating sexual division of labor, does not detract from this assessment. 
for it is in pre-capitalist Europe, women's subordination to men had been tempered by the fact that they had access to the commons and other communal assets. While in the new capitalist regime, women themselves became the commons, as their work was defined as a natural resource laying outside of the sphere of market relations. From the work of these two authors, we can put together that oppression, alienation, and exploitation under capitalism aren't accidental byproducts of the system. As Karl Marx said, they are key features. They are foundational. They are the cornerstone that created capitalism. It was specifically created in Europe during a time where they saw anybody who wasn't fair-skinned as being less than human. It was created at a time where women were having their rights stripped from them, what rights they barely had under feudalism, the rights to the commons, to live off of the lands, to not be subjugated to a husband, to not have to procreate, to create a craft, was all taken. Any monetary benefit they could have had was taken. Black bodies were enslaved. Native Americans were killed. These are not accidental byproducts. They are foundational to the system, and they are foundational parts that continue today. And while many people see capitalism as its own being that was, again, born out of feudalism, it's really continuation of it. If we're thinking of pure capitalism, if we're thinking of land as a commodity that needs to be used to create goods and services, then what are landlords? Why the title lord, right? These are leftover remnants of feudalism because it really is a continuation of the same system. Again, Federici notes in her book that the same people in power during the early modern period somehow still kept power in this transition to capitalism because they started with all the capital. The capital was not redistributed, therefore there was no transition in the system. It was those with money and power under feudalism kept the same money and the same power, just generated in new and different ways. We know that one of the first things that capitalism did when it came to power was to deny the rights of women within their society and then paint anybody outside of their white society as other, as somebody who can be exploited. So the question really has to be asked, can capitalism exist alongside human rights? Capitalism today has not varied far from its roots. We still live under a system of exploitation that thrives on perceived differences that explicitly exploits the bodies that diverge from the white, cis, able, wealthy, landowning, and male heteronormative subject capitalism is designed to benefit. Again, those were the subjects who could vote in early America. Those were the subjects that wrote laws in the House of Lords in Parliament, uh, were advisors to the crown when capitalism came to power in Europe. Nowhere is this exploitation more apparent than in colonial practices. Practices that nations like England began to develop and engage in most infamously with the nation's second public joint stock company, the East India Trading Company, founded in 1600. For people who might not be familiar with the East Indian Company, it was, again, a joint stock company formed in England um, that sailed to India and essentially brutally colonized it uh, for the profit of England, not for the benefit of the native peoples. 
There is little to no difference between the exploitative practices of the early modern joint stock companies that expanded to colonize and oppress the people of India, of Scotland, of Ireland, and later most of the world, because remember, England became a nation in which infamously the sun never set, right? Um, but these companies polluted the oceans, right? They polluted the land. They, you know, colonized America, again, founded by companies. We have the West Virginia Company. We have a state named after a company, Virginia, uh, that were here to kill natives and cut down trees, hunt for furs, to really grow tobacco, exploit anything the land had to offer, commodify it, and send it back to Europe. Not only did they pollute and strip the lands of, you know, goods and harm their local peoples, um, they had a lasting kind of legacy in history and one that people still, when they think of the word colonize, want to emulate today. Uh, take Elon Musk, for example, and his want to colonize Mars. Every time SpaceX launches, it launches not only next to poor neighborhoods, um, but they launch next to wetlands. And recently, Elon Musk and SpaceX have come under fire for debris that have actually fallen from their launches into the wetlands. He's spent a lot of money on cleaning up, fixing, and has proposals for these wetlands, but that doesn't undo the damage done. And a lot of people are focusing on the debris. There's also charges about light pollution and how all these satellites and launches into space are muddying the atmosphere, so we're not able to kind of see out space anymore. We're making it so people can't look up and have a night sky. In an LA Times article titled, Can We Get to Space Without Damaging the Earth?, through huge carbon emissions, that when SpaceX Falcon Heavy rockets blast off, that pume of white smoke is created from 27 engines that create a thrust equal to 18 Boeing 747 aircrafts. Upon reaching orbit, the heaviest rocket will have burned about 400 metric tons of kerosene and emitted more carbon dioxide in a few minutes than an average car would do in more than two centuries. SpaceX is also planning to launch another 12,000 satellites in the next seven years for its Stark Internet constellation. Yet another article from MarketWatch titled Elon Musk is polluting the skies with SpaceX's thousands of satellites notes that one thing that Elon Musk is trying to do, like his predecessors, colonizers of the 1600s, is to privatize what is considered a public good. In other words, he is trying to privatize space, which in 1967 in the Outer Space Treaty declared it a common good for all of mankind. Elon Musk in other interviews has also noted that many people will die in order to colonize Mars, but he still sees it as something worth doing. Instead of preserving our current planet, instead of reducing the amount of pollution and damage, that his rockets do to the wetlands, to poor areas of color, to our environment, period. He is determined to kill people and destroy the planet in order for capitalism to expand to space. And that is another major part of capitalism, expansion. Capitalism is rooted in exploitation and expansion. In the early modern period, it had to colonize other nations and other worlds and other people in order to survive. It, it's the greatest pyramid scheme. It needs to take in goods. It needs to take in markets in order to support itself. 
because the planet is now completely covered in capitalism, it can no longer survive this market. It needs to expand. And that means that it needs to go to space. We've had the tech boom. We've had other sorts of booms, artificial markets. We've had multiple crashes every 10 or so years. The system can no longer survive. It is no longer concerned with the current people living on this planet or the planet itself. There is no room for human rights in a system that is more concerned with its own survival than with ours. Likewise, there is no room for human rights in a system that sees any variance from the rich, white, cis, able, straight male as a threat. We are not a threat for existing. The system was not designed for us. That's simply what it comes down to. We are not granted rights under capitalism because capitalism was never meant to grant us rights. In the early modern period, this abuse came at the hands of men in power like the Pope, like the king, sometimes queens, and colonizers and companies that colonized. Today, we had the same systems of abuse and violence that come handed down from our politicians, are interpreted by the police and the military around the world, and again, are there to benefit the market, not the people. While time has passed, the capitalist system has failed to evolve in a way of human rights and has instead found new measures often through reforms presented as solutions for the system's inherent brutalities, to reinvent the same violent oppression of the past. A recent example of this can be found in body-worn cameras for police. In Los Angeles, they were marketed as something that would help protect people because it would be an extra set of eyes out there keeping the police accountable. What it turned into was a private contract that wasn't openly bid on despite the LAPD being required to openly consider bids from multiple contractors in cases like this. In addition to the weird money things, or besides the weird money things, the body cameras and their footage was not made available to the public. So what they ended up becoming were ways for police to practice their stories because they could watch this footage again and again and get a story down before it was presented in court. It takes a subpoena. It takes even more court, right, in order to make this footage released. It was proposed as a solution to police brutality, but as we've seen in 2020 and 2021, since body cameras have been implemented, there is no reduction in the murder of black men and women in Los Angeles, of brown men and women in Los Angeles, of mentally disabled, of people who are not physically uh, able-bodied. We've seen it again and again and again. None of these reforms and again, Los Angeles police are one of the most um, reformed, quote unquote, police departments with the most training and the most measures, but they're also one of the ones that kill the most. Capitalism and capitalist reforms will never undo the systems of oppression in place because the very foundations, cornerstones of capitalism are these means of exploitation, are these means of difference, racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, classism, alienation, exploitation, etc. Human rights, like freedom and equality, cannot and do not exist under capitalism. Further, other rights like housing, food, water, healthcare, open land, and even life cannot and do not exist under capitalism. It is up to us to see the system for what it is, man-made by those in power 
to maintain their power and status. Capitalism was constructed and, like all constructed things, it can be dismantled. We can create a new era designed on human rights, not on exploitation, alienation, oppression, and difference. But it's up to us to kind of recognize that and to come together and to say that we want something better. And not just say that we want it, but to act on it. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to Exit Capitalism Stage Left. I have been your podcaster, Manda Riggle, and I would once again like to thank the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights for hosting this podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode.